Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Bambi for supporting my show. HR manager salaries average $70,000 a year, but only Bambi gives you a dedicated HR manager for just $99 a month. So get your free HR compliance audit at Bambi.com gold, spelled Bambi, B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash gold. Well, one of the big stories today was the U.S. dollar which fell across the board. In fact, the U.S. dollar index closed below 90 the first time it's traded with an 89 handle since February of this year. We closed at 89.79, uh, down about 0.38 on the day. And, you know, if you look at the dollar index and take a look at a chart, we are very close to making a low going all the way back to December of 2014 because all we need to do is fall by about a half a percent and we will take out the low from March of 2018 which was around 88.23 and then if we break that which again we're less than two percent away from that maybe 1.7 percent if we break that we will be trading at a level that we haven't seen since December of 2014. But remember, the dollar had a big rally in 2014, and that was based on the false expectation that QE had been a big success and that because it worked so well, the Fed was going to be able to successfully unwind its policy. So it was going to normalize interest rates and shrink the balance sheet back down to pre 2008 financial crisis levels. Now, of course, none of that was true. The entire narrative upon which the dollar rally was based ended up being false. Exactly what I said was going to happen the entire time traders were buying up the dollar. So I think once we really start to get back into the 2014 level, I think the dollar could quickly surrender all of its ill-gotten gains from 2014 and 2013, and we can see the dollar index making a beeline for all-time record lows below 70. But, you know, what's really significant about the fact that the dollar is selling off now is that the dollar is selling off despite the fact that bond yields are continuing to inch higher and despite the fact 
that inflation fears are becoming more widespread. There's more discussion about inflation. It's being brought up in, in earnings calls. And, and so it is a bigger concern now for investors. And again, up until recently, investors have seen evidence of rising inflation as being bullish for the dollar, the same way they saw it as being bearish for gold. And just as the dollar is weakening in the face of rising inflation fears, now the gold price is rising. In fact, we had a big move up in the price of gold yesterday. I think it was about another 20 bucks. Today, we just tacked on about three, but we're almost at $1,870 an ounce. So again, gold rising, the dollar falling, as inflation fears are becoming more widespread. Now that is intuitively what one would expect, but the reason we haven't gotten that reaction is because traders expected the Fed to fight off the inflation problem uh, before it became big and solve the problem. But I think now what the markets are telling us is more and more traders are starting to finally figure out that there is no politically viable mechanism, policy option for the Fed when it comes to fighting inflation. And so rather than expecting the Fed to solve the inflation problem, markets are now beginning to come to the realization that there is no solution to the inflation problem, that the inflation problem is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and that the Fed is going to do nothing about it. And so when that's the type of fear, when the markets are not afraid of the Fed fighting inflation, but of the Fed not fighting inflation, that is when you really start to see the movement down in the exchange rate of the dollar and up in the price of gold. And we're already seeing that. And the other thing that we are continuing to see is the rotation out of the momentum speculative type stocks into the value-oriented stocks that are seen as better inflation hedges in an environment of elevated inflation. Although today, all the stocks got clobbered, especially late in the day. We had a big late-day sell-off that saw the Dow Jones average close down 267 points, just under 0.8%. NASDAQ also sold off pretty hard. It was up for most of the morning, a bit of a reversal Tuesday rally, but it surrendered those gains, closing again on the low of the day, down almost 0.9% for the NASDAQ composite. And Bitcoin, of course, continues to follow risk stocks lower rather than gold and silver higher. So you have this movement into inflation hedges and out of momentum stocks that do better in an environment where you don't have inflation. And again, the fact that Bitcoin is trading with the speculative growth stocks rather than with the defensive stores of value inflation hedges is more proof of what I have been telling you from the beginning about Bitcoin is that it's not a safe haven. It's not a store of value. It is the most speculative of risk assets. And that is why it continues to fall. And again, I got more to say on Bitcoin. I'm going to do that again later in the podcast. I want to backtrack a bit and talk about some economic data that came out today that pretty much supports exactly what I said on my last podcast that I did on Saturday. And this has to do with the housing market. I talked about the plunge in home buying sentiment to a level we haven't seen since 1983. Yet despite the fact that home buyers are becoming more and more pessimistic about the prospects of buying a home, builder confidence and optimism was still off the charts. Home builders were extremely optimistic. Well, now we see these housing starts for April showing that they're finally beginning to see reality because we had a huge miss in housing starts. There was a consensus estimate for 1.6 to 1.77 million starts, and that's an annualized number. So they take the monthly number and multiply by 12. But that was the expectation, and that would have followed a 1.739 million number for March. Now that number was revised a bit lower to one spot 733 million, but instead of the 1.705 million that was expected, we actually had 1.569 million, which was a nine and a half percent decline 
from the downwardly revised number from the prior month. So why did we have this big miss? Why did home builders build fewer homes than was expected? Well, one reason is because they're finding out that the home buyer can't afford to pay these higher prices that are in part the result of skyrocketing construction costs. One of them being lumber. And I've been talking about the price of lumber on this podcast for some time. In fact, we finally saw a significant correction in lumber. The price of lumber has been falling now for several days or maybe about a week. We were down about four and three quarters percent today, back down to 1,264 per thousand board foot. Remember, we got up to like 1,700, 1,750. It looked like we might make 2,000, and I still think ultimately we will. But in the meantime, we've seen this significant correction in this market, I think in large part because of the reduction now in home building demand that is a function of the rising costs of building those homes. Lumber is getting so expensive that the demand for lumber is going down because it's impossible now to build a home that home buyers can afford given how expensive it is to construct them. But this does not mean necessarily that we're going to see a collapse in home prices because consumers still have lots of money with which to buy homes, and the Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates artificially low, making it easier for home buyers to get the money and to service the debts necessary to buy these homes. It's just that we're not going to see the extra supply because all the inflation is substantially driving up the costs of building these homes. So we're going to have all this demand for housing because of all the money that is being created by the Fed and given to people with which to buy homes, but we're not going to see the actual construction of homes to buy. And, you know, a lot of people are going to start talking about how there is a housing shortage. And see, that is the problem. Prices are going up because there is a housing shortage. And you're going to hear more and more talk now to trying to explain away inflation and say that the reason prices are going up is because we have these shortages. Because nobody in the government wants to accept responsibility for the price increases, right? Because the real problem is not that we have a shortage of goods. It's that we have a surplus of money, right? That is the problem. I mean, we don't have an unlimited supply of goods. We never do. In fact, the basic definition of economics is really how to satisfy unlimited demand with limited resources. But what the government is doing with all this money printing is they're artificially stimulating demand. People now have a lot more money to go out and buy stuff, but people aren't going into the economy and producing the stuff. So we have all this money, this huge money supply, but there's not goods for people to use to buy. So all you can do is bid up prices. But it's always going to look like a shortage of supply whenever you have a lot of money. I mean, think about it from this perspective. What if the U.S. government decided to up the size of the stimulus checks? What if they decided to send everybody a million dollars, right? Just one big check. Let's let's make everybody a millionaire, right? That should really boom this economy if everybody in America was a millionaire, right? Wouldn't we have a strong economy if we were all millionaires? Okay, great. So let's give everybody a check for a million dollars. Now, would it surprise anybody if we actually did this, if all of a sudden there were news reports of shortages of Ferraris or Porsches or Lamborghinis, right? All these expensive exotic sports cars, all of a sudden there'd be big shortages of these cars because everybody would be a millionaire. And so everybody would want to buy these expensive sports cars, but clearly there's not enough to go around. And so the politicians would say, hey, we've got a shortage of Ferraris. We have a shortage of Porsches. No, we don't. We would have a surplus of millionaires. That's the problem. You see, there's not enough Porsches and Ferraris and Lamborghinis for everybody to have one because it's very expensive to produce them. 
it requires a lot of resources, a lot of labor, a lot of skill. That's why they're so expensive because you can't make many of them. So if we just give a bunch of people money and now they all want to buy those cars, it's impossible for them all to have them. So what has to happen is the price of those cars now has to rise to find a new equilibrium so that roughly the same number of cars ends up getting sold but they just get sold at a much, much higher price point. So now all these new millionaires, they're not going to have Ferraris. They're not going to have Maseratis. They're going to buy a Ford or a GM car. They're going to buy the same cars they bought before, except now they're going to pay much higher prices for those because everybody has all this money. You know, what if the government gave everybody $100 million, right? Whoa, no, now there's shortages of yachts. There's shortages of private jets. Right, everybody wants to buy a private jet, but there's not enough to go around. Of course, there's not enough to go around. It is impossible. So the government, though, is going to hide behind this supply shortage myth to try to deflect responsibility for inflation and rising prices. Now, yes, in part, you are seeing the result of the fact that a lot of people during COVID were locked down at home, so they weren't on the job helping to produce stuff. And I talked about that from the very beginning when COVID first started, that that was going to happen. But the real problem is not that temporary backlog, but the permanent increase in the money supply. And, you know, a lot of the workers who were off the job in Asia and Europe, they're back at work now, right? It's Americans who have this perverse incentive not to go to work. So we're paying all of our workers to stay home, but that's not really happening uh, so much in Asia. I mean, people are on the job. The problem is you can't create enough products to satisfy this huge increase in the amount of money that non-productive Americans now have. In fact, you know, earlier today, Walmart came out. I guess they had better than expected earnings. And one of the things that I guess this, you know, Walmart said or CEO or whoever mentioned that he was very optimistic because their customers were really flush, right? They had a lot of money to spend and they were anxious to spend it. And, you know, he was optimistic about the future because they had a lot of savings now. And so we have a really strong consumer. And so they can't wait to go to Walmart. And so Walmart is doing great because the consumer is so strong. And what this statement overlooks is that there is a huge difference between consumers who have money because they earned it through productive work, right? They went to work, they produce goods, they help provide services, and as a result of that work and their productivity, they now earn some money, and now they can buy some of the stuff they help produce. There's a big difference between that and people staying at home, getting checks from the government, and just spending the money that the Federal Reserve prints. So if the consumer has a fat wallet because it's loaded up with money he didn't earn but that the Fed printed, if he still has a big uh, savings pool because the Fed filled up that pool with money that wasn't earned, that doesn't mean these customers are strong. See, what's going to happen and what Walmart doesn't just get is that all these products that they're importing right now, and you go to Walmart and you want to buy anything, right? It's made in some foreign country other than maybe, you know, some produce or certain things. I mean, most of the stuff that you're buying in Walmart was imported, right? That's why you have this record congestion at all the ports, right? All these imports are coming in. What's going to happen to put a stop to the spending is the dollar is going to fall through the floor and prices at Walmart are going to go through the roof. We're going to be looking at everyday high prices, not everyday low prices. And when prices are high, customers can't afford to buy. So even though the Fed is giving people money, they're still not going to have enough to afford these higher prices once you really start to see the dollar dropping. And that is exactly what is going to happen. And in fact, we even got news today on wages going up. Bank of America was in the news announcing that now it's going to pay its workers a minimum wage of $25 an hour. So that's the lowest wage that any entry-level person is going to have at Bank of America is $25 an hour. And we're seeing this across the board. Wages are going up. Prices are going up. And the Fed is sitting there claiming that there's nothing to see, that there's no inflation, and anything we're witnessing is transitory. Now, 
Part of the wage problem, of course, is the fact that the government is making it so lucrative for people not to work and paying people so much money to stay at home. I mentioned now finally that it was Goldman Sachs' as economist that acknowledged the obvious and made the connection between these overly generous extended unemployment benefits and the fact that people don't want to go to work. But this is also helping to fuel the inflation problem because not only are people not going to work because the government has making them a better deal, forcing businesses to have to pay higher wages than they otherwise would have to pay, but it's also debasing the value of money because those people who are sitting at home and getting unemployment money, the government has to print that money. The Fed has to print up all the money so that these unemployment checks don't bounce. So the government, on the one hand, is incentivizing people not to produce products. And on the other hand, they're now printing up money to give to those people who used to be engaged in productive employment, but who are now sitting at home in order to receive the money that the Fed just printed. So it's a perfect inflationary storm where we get less production and more money at the same time. More money, fewer goods. Prices have only one way to go, and that's up, and they are going to go way up. You know, as a matter of fact, just the other day on CNBC, they were talking about a survey. And I guess the point that they were trying to make was that, hey, you know, look, it's not just these unemployment benefits that are causing people not to take jobs. They were pointing to the survey where, you know, they surveyed people who were turning down jobs and they asked them, you know, why are you turning down the job? Right. And there were various questions. And, you know, most of them didn't say, well, because, you know, I'd rather get unemployment. Right. Well, who's going to say that? right? The survey is very biased. Nobody wants to admit that, that that's the reason. Yeah, I'm just a lazy bum and I want to stay home. And so I'm not taking a job because I like living off unemployment, right? Not that many people are going to admit to that, even if that's the case. But they focused on one particular answer that maybe was the number one answer and they couldn't make the connection. The number one answer that people were giving as to why they weren't accepting jobs was that the pay was too low. Right. So people were turning down jobs because the jobs that they were being offered didn't pay enough. Now, that is also because of the overly generous extended unemployment benefits. Here's why. If I am getting the equivalent of $15 an hour in these you know, enhanced uh, unemployment benefits, but without those benefits, I might only get $7 an hour. What happens if an employer comes and offers me $14 an hour? Well, if I'm making $7 in unemployment and somebody offers me $14 an hour, well, I'll probably take the job because I can earn twice as much, right? $14 an hour is twice seven. But if I'm getting $15 an hour in these supplemental unemployment benefits, am I going to accept a job at $14 an hour? No, because unemployment gives me a better deal. So is the problem that the wages are too low? No, that's not the problem. The problem is that the unemployment benefits are too high. Take away those high unemployment benefits and somebody would take the $14 an hour job. But with $15 an hour not to work, you'd have to be a fool to accept that job. And again, I don't blame people for turning down jobs where the pay is less than what they get not to work. In fact, I don't blame people for turning down jobs that pay you more than what you get not working, because not working is more fun than working, especially if a job you don't like. Why is somebody going to go to a job that they don't like? Because they need the money. Well, if you don't need the money, you're not going to take a job that you don't like. I mean, this is not rocket science, but all of this is contributing to the inflationary problem that is going to get much, much worse. In fact, This whole decade, this is going to be the decade of inflation, the decade of stagflation. You know, if you go back to the 1970s, 1971, inflation in 1971 for the whole year, and I got this by looking up the statistics, was 5.84%. That was for the whole year. 
As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Now, if you take the first four months of this year and annualize them, you get a rate of just over 6%. So, so far, 2021, right, the first year of this decade, is starting out with more inflation than the first year of the 1970s. Now, of course, it's actually worse if you factor in the changes to the CPI because the CPI that we're using today is nothing like the CPI that we used in 1971. I mean, if we measured prices in 1971 using today's CPI, maybe it would have only been 2% that year, maybe even less. Conversely, if we were measuring prices now using the same CPI that they used in 1971, I'm sure we'd already be annualizing well in excess of 10%. We may even be closer to 20%. So we already have higher inflation than we had in 1971. But the rate we had in 1971 was so troubling. The country was so worried about an inflation rate of 5.84% that the Nixon administration imposed wage and price controls. Now, a totally misguided policy that did not work because remember, wage and price controls target the symptom of inflation, which is rising prices. They don't target the cause or the inflation itself. So it can't possibly work. If all you're trying to do is cover up the symptoms, well, then the the disease is going to keep getting worse. Like if you got a skin cancer and instead of treating the cancer, you just put a Band-Aid on top of it so you can't see it. Well, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. Just because you can't see the cancer, that doesn't mean that you've done anything about it. And that's what happened with wage and price controls. They simply continued to create inflation. It was the inflation that was pressuring prices higher and simply trying to artificially restrain the effect of inflation while continuing to create it. Ultimately, when they removed the wage and price controls, prices exploded 
In the meantime, the markets found ways around the wage and price controls. And so prices kept going up. And in fact, if you look at where the CPI was in 1979, that was the peak. It rose at 13.3% that year. 1980 was a bit lower. I think it was like 13.2 or something like that. But that was really the peak. And then the rate started coming down in 1981. But the rate continued to accelerate throughout all of the 1970s, despite the fact that we began the decade with wage and price controls. Now, right now, we've got inflation that's as bad as 1971, and we're not even close to worried about it. We're just dismissing it. We're just saying it's all transitory. But, you know, interestingly enough, even though they were able to eventually control inflation and rein it in in the 1980s, it's not like the huge price increases of the 1970s ever got reversed. The only thing that happened is the prices that went way up between 1971 and 1979, all that happened during the 80s is that they continue to go up. They just went up at a slower rate, but they never went back down. We had a permanent and substantial increase in the cost of living during that decade that was never reversed. It was permanent. And that is the main reason that we had a massive influx of working women into the labor force in the 1980s. They weren't in the labor force in the 1960s. Why were they in the labor force in the 1980s? The government wants to tell you it's because of women's liberation. It's actually the reverse. Women were liberated when they didn't have to work. They lost their liberty when they had to work. And the reason they had to work was because prices went up so much more than wages during the 1970s that their husbands could no longer afford to support them and their kids. So they had no choice but to join the labor force. So that was the result of that inflation. So what is going to be the result of this next massive inflation? And again, even if the Fed was correct in that this high inflation is transitory, that doesn't mean it's going to get reversed. So if we have a year where prices go up 10 or 20% and they never go back down, if they just start going up 2% a year after that, that is a permanent increase in the cost of living for every Americans, which is like a massive tax, right? If the cost of living goes up by 10%, let's say you're earning uh, 40000 a year. And thanks to one year of transitory inflation, prices go up by 10%, and then they're 10% higher every single year into the future. Well, that's like you're paying a $4,000 tax because most people that earn $40,000 a year, they spend it all. And if everything costs 10% more because of one year of transitory inflation, you've got an annual tax bill of $4,000. Meanwhile, you got Joe Biden saying nobody earning less than $400,000 a year is going to pay a tax Think about the enormity of that inflation tax. And of course, it's not going to be transitory. There is no reason to believe that this snowball is going to stop rolling down this hill. It's going to keep gathering momentum as it gets bigger and bigger. So we're going to have higher inflation, I think, in 2022 than we have in 2021 and probably higher in 2023 than we have in 2022. So the tax hikes are going to get bigger and bigger. Now, of course, wages are going to go up, right? So people are going to have some increases in their wages to offset the increase in their prices. But what they earn is not going to be going up as fast as what they're buying. And they're going to continuously be behind the curve. And of course, what really gets wiped out are your savings because you don't get any raise there. So if you have money that you save from work that you've done in the past and that you were hoping to spend in the future, you're getting taxed on that substantially because that's not going up. And you have a lot of people who are living on fixed incomes. And these are not millionaires and billionaires who are living on fixed income. You have a lot of middle-class retirees whose retirement is going to be completely destroyed by this inflation tax, and they're going to have to go back to work. Oh, by the way, the interview I did with Ben Shapiro finally made it onto YouTube. A lot of people had heard me mention I was on the Shapiro show, but they weren't able to see it because it was reserved for paid subscribers. Well, now it's available to anybody. So just go on YouTube and Google Peter Schiff, Ben Shapiro, or go to Ben Shapiro's YouTube channel. You can check out the interview. It's about 16 minutes in length. You know, when you're running a small business, those HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, anti-discrimination, other labor regulations, and those HR managers ain't cheap 
an average of $70,000 a year. And that's where Bambi comes in. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business owners like you and me. You can get a dedicated HR manager that will craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance all for just 99 bucks a month. And with Bambi, you can change HR from being your biggest liability to one of your biggest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they'll customize your policies to fit your business and they'll help you manage your employees on a day-to-day basis and again, do it all for just $99 a month. And it's month to month. You can cancel any time and there's no hidden fees. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend your time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help you. So make sure and take advantage of your free audit today. Just go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule that free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash gold. I was listening to a financial advisor or somebody who was talking about how they're really no longer recommending bonds to their clients and how the typical bond allocation, you know, there used to be an old saying on Wall Street that it's kind of the reverse of your age. So if you're 35 years old, you know, you can have 65% allocation to stocks and 35% allocation to bonds. And as you get older, you're 60 years old, well, you have 60% in bonds and, and, and 40% in stocks. So it's your stock allocation that's the inverse to your age. And as you get older, you have more and more money invested in bonds and less and less in stocks because you want to take less risk and you want to have a more predictable income. But given the fact that bond yields are so low, uh, people are saying now that it just doesn't make any sense to allocate money to bonds when the yield is so low and we have inflation, you just have to have more and more of your portfolio in equities even as you're older uh, because inflation is just going to erode away the value of your bonds. And I completely agree. I mean, I don't think anybody should have money in U.S. bonds. I mean, I do recommend some allocation to foreign bonds because I have a lot more faith in some of these other currencies than I do in the dollar. But I still tell people to have a much lower allocation to bonds and a higher allocation to equities, given the fact that I see inflation as a global problem, not just a U.S. problem. I just think it will be particularly pronounced in the U.S. So I think Americans have more to fear from inflation than people in other countries. But I think everybody around the world should recognize that we're going to have higher inflation that they've been accustomed to. And your portfolios should reflect that with higher allocations uh, to equities, dividend paying stocks and less to bonds. But the point I want to make here is if this is true, right, if fewer and fewer Americans are being advised to allocate money to bonds, What about all the companies that need to sell bonds? What about all the municipalities? What about the U.S. government, right? If bonds are very unappealing to a buyer, but you have everybody who wants to sell, and in fact, for the very reasons that nobody wants to buy bonds, everybody wants to sell bonds, right? If you know that there's going to be a lot of inflation, you want to borrow a lot of money now and you want to buy real assets so you can pay off your loans in the future with inflated dollars. So you have all these people, all these companies and governments eager to borrow money, but you have nobody in the private sector willing to lend it for obvious reasons. Now, what would the free market do with that imbalance, right? You have lots of people who want to borrow, but nobody who wants to lend. Interest rates would go up and that would solve the problem because as interest rates went higher, well, now fewer people would want to borrow. And as interest rates went up, more people would want to lend and then you'd get an equilibrium. But the government, the Federal Reserve, can't allow that to happen because there's now so much debt thanks to all their stimulus of the past that they have to keep interest rates artificially low. But that means the only way we can have a bond market, the only way companies or governments can borrow money at all is if the Federal Reserve loans it to them because the Federal Reserve is the only entity dumb enough to make the loans 
although it's not actually dumb enough because it doesn't actually cost them money. Because when a private loan is made, people are willingly losing money and people don't want to willingly lose their own money. But since the Federal Reserve just creates the money out of thin air, what does it care if it loses it? Because it can create more. And of course, individuals are motivated by economics, right? They're not going to make loans that don't make economic sense. The Federal Reserve is motivated by politics. It doesn't give a damn whether the loans make sense or not if it's motivated politically. It's afraid not to make the loans. It's afraid of having a financial crisis and the markets crash and housing crash and the government have to default. So now it's making loans that the free market would never make because they're not viable based on the low interest rate. But because the only way we can have a bond market is if the Fed buys all the bonds, That means inflation is going to run rampant because the way the Fed buys bonds is by printing money. It can only buy bonds if it prints more money. And the more money it prints, the less attractive bonds become. And the fewer bonds the private sector wants to buy, the more bonds the private sector wants to sell. So the more inflation the Fed creates, the more demand it also creates for debt. More people want to borrow and fewer people want to lend. And again, it's a self-perpetuating prophecy or spiral that ends in economic collapse and massive inflation. And all of that is right around the corner. And that is what you can see now. The early stages of everything that I've been advocating now for over a decade is now happening. But because a lot of people had no idea that this was coming, they still don't recognize what's happening. In fact, you know, I was watching Jim Cramer on CNBC. This is on Thursday. And the market opens up and all the tech stocks are getting killed and and the cryptos are getting killed. And so Cramer is on television live and he's looking over his screen, right? He's scrolling on his screen. He's got all the symbols of the stocks he follows. And he says, what a nasty day. It's really nasty out there. And as he's saying that, looking at his screen, I'm looking at my screen and it's almost all green. I mean, Thursday was a huge day for foreign value stocks and gold and silver mining stocks. Huge day. So from Kramer's perspective, it was a nasty day. Well, it was only nasty if you've been following the investment advice of CNBC. If you were loaded up in the Kathy Woods innovation type stocks, all this expensive overpriced tech and you know you didn't own international value stocks you didn't own gold and silver stocks yeah it was a nasty day but if you ignored all the talking heads on CNBC and you had the right portfolio it was a great day in fact even today was an okay day I mean it wasn't as good as yesterday but you know it was another balanced day maybe slightly positive outside the U.S. even though we got a big sell-off inside the U.S. although that was late in the day so it may spill over a little bit into the foreign markets which of course were already closed uh, by the time the Dow collapsed uh, you know late in the day today but overall look at the gains year-to-date on the global market compared to the U.S. and in particular look at the Nasdaq which is now up less than three percent on the year. At one point, I think the NASDAQ was up close to 10%. And so now we're well off the highs, but I have a feeling that maybe even by the end of this week, but certainly by the end of this month, the NASDAQ will have surrendered 100% of its gains on the year and will be in the red. And I think the same thing may in fact happen for Bitcoin. In fact, if you look at the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, it's back down at 3438 It was as high as $58 a share this year. So that Grayscale Trust is now down 41% from its high this year, which was about a month ago. And in fact, if you look at where Grayscale Trust is trading now, it's actually 10% below. It's high from 2017, believe it or not. During that time period, the price of gold is up 40%. So if you had dropped your gold and bought GBTC, as the commercials suggest, although the the drop gold campaign had not yet begun, but had somebody done it in advance of the campaign, not only would they have lost 10% in Bitcoin trust, but they would have missed out on a 40% gain in the price of gold. Now, Bitcoin is still up on the year, 
but it's only up a little bit more than 10%. It closed last year at 32. And even though it at one point it was up to 58.22, it closed again 34.38. It's up $2.38 on the year. It could surrender that gain tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, probably by the end of the week. I mean, it's amazing how complacent the whole Bitcoin community is when you are staring at a potential enormous head and shoulders top. I talked about it on my podcast over the weekend. And in fact, this was before we got that tweet from Elon Musk that sent Bitcoin skidding again. And again, you know, the fact that a tweet from an individual can have so much influence on the price of Bitcoin in and of itself proves that it's not a store of value. It's not a safe haven. In fact, the tweet that sent Bitcoin down again had just one word, one word in the entire tweet, and that's all it took. And that word was indeed. And the tweet that inspired that reply from Musk had to do with somebody was saying, hey, you know, with all this anti-Musk tweeting out there, everybody bashing Elon Musk, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Elon just decided to dump all of his Bitcoin, right? Just sell all the Bitcoin that Tether has. And his reply was indeed, which implied that he either had sold his Bitcoin or was going to sell his Bitcoin and the price really start to sell off. Now, at some point, I think it was later that day or the next day, Musk tweeted out a clarification, Tesla has not sold its Bitcoin. Now, we know that it sold 10% of its Bitcoin because it already admitted that. And so when Musk tweets out that we haven't sold our Bitcoin, to me, that means that he hasn't sold all of his Bitcoin, that Tesla still has some Bitcoin, but it's possible that some has been sold. But the fact that a lot of it may not have been sold is probably even more bearish for Bitcoin uh, than people think because had Musk already unloaded all of his Bitcoin, then at least the sale would have been done. But if he still has a bunch of Bitcoin that he intends to sell, then that supply is still overhanging the market. And the fact that he hasn't sold, but maybe is intending to sell is actually bearish. But when the tweet came out that Tesla hadn't sold, it actually sparked a rally in Bitcoin that has since been reversed. And in fact, Bitcoin bounced off the low earlier today at 42,000 per Bitcoin. As I am recording the podcast, we're back above 43,000 again. But the chart looks horrible for Bitcoin. I mean, obviously, it doesn't look horrible if you go back to the very beginning. I mean, Bitcoin could stay in a bull market and the price could go back down to 25,000. In fact, maybe it'll reach less 20,000, which was the old high, and it could still be in a bull market. But I think it would be very hard to sustain that bull market if we actually saw the price of Bitcoin drop from $65,000 an ounce all the way down to $20,000. I don't know a lot of the new money that just came in because they thought they were going to get rich quick and it was going to be easy money. I don't think they're uh, going to ride that out. I think they're going to sell and they're never going to come back. In fact, if you look at the total number of uh, cryptocurrencies that now exist, as I am recording this podcast, it's 9,915. And clearly at the rate these new cryptocurrencies are being created out of thin air, we are going to have 10,000 altcoins by next week. Now, you know, all of the, the Bitcoin fanatics or Bitcoin maximalists or purists or whatever you want to call them, they always have to make fun of all these altcoins because they represent a threat to Bitcoin. Not only do they represent competition because money that is going into an altcoin is money that can't go into Bitcoin. And in fact, money is now coming out of Bitcoin to go into altcoins, but it undermines the narrative of scarcity that somehow Bitcoin is unique and scarce because there's only 21 million of them. Well, maybe there's 21 million Bitcoin, but if there's 10,000 other coins that have their own supply and they're all competing with Bitcoin, then that whole scarcity 
scarcity argument collapses. Now, people will try to say, well, but they're all not Bitcoin. Well, sure, they just have a different name, but they don't have a different substance. There really is no substantive difference between Bitcoin and any of these other coins. Yes, some may be proof of work. Some may be proof of stake. They have a little bit of a different protocol. But at the end of the day, they're just nothing, right? They're, 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 they're not real. It's not the same way that there's difference between gold and another element or even another metal. I mean, gold is not the only metal on the periodic table, but there are real differences between gold and lead or gold and copper, gold and nickel, gold and zinc. Those differences are far greater than the difference between Bitcoin and any of these other currencies. Now, a lot of people try to say, well, you know, it's it's the infrastructure that's built around it. That's what gives Bitcoin value. Well, so what? I mean, if there's nothing that stops that infrastructure from also accommodating any of these other cryptocurrencies. And it's not just the altcoins, right, that Bitcoin competes with. You now have all sorts of stocks that are competing for the crypto money. Because it's not just cryptocurrencies where people who are bullish on Bitcoin or cryptos can speculate. You now have all sorts of stocks that are out there that are proxies for Bitcoin. But now these stocks are getting killed. Look at MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy down another 1% today. It's at $487.20. It was as high as 1315 So that's down 63% and it could keep on falling. Look at that chart. Look at Coinbase, right? Coinbase, in fact, Coinbase just recently announced that it was going to start accommodating Dogecoin, right? In the past and as of right now, you can't trade Dogecoin on Coinbase. But now because there's all this demand for Dogecoin, they're going to put it out there. And again, that's going to compete Uh, with Bitcoin. And again, it's laughable when you hear all these Bitcoin guys making fun of Dogecoin using the exact same arguments against Dogecoin that I've used against Bitcoin. You know, it's the same thing. It's so ironic, yet they're trapped in this bubble. They can't see it. But look at Coinbase down another three and a half percent today. It's now below the reference price from the IPO in April. The reference price was 250. And remember, it traded as high as 429, probably in the first 10 or 15 minutes of trading. And I remember the guys on CNBC were covering it. They were so giddy. They were loud. This is great. It's going to go up forever. This is fantastic. They were so excited to watch this thing ticking up in the opening minutes of trading, having no idea what they were doing was witnessing the peak. Everybody should have been selling, uh, not following their advice to buy. But we've gone straight down. We're now down 44% from that opening day high. Look at some of these other stocks. Look at Galaxy Digital. That stock was down another 7% today. It's down 48% from its high. And look again, I already talked about the Grayscale Trust down another 3% today. But you have all of these proxies for cryptocurrencies that are trading. So while there was all this demand for these speculative assets. And everybody thought they were going to get rich. The market was continuously creating more and more supply to satisfy all that speculative demand. But what's going to happen is when the price collapses and the speculative demand goes away, you have all this residual supply still in the market. And so there's going to be just an implosion of price. And despite that, Nobody is worried. You know, I was talking to a good friend of mine here in Puerto Rico, and he told me, this is on Thursday morning, he texted me that he just took out a $10 million tether loan to buy more Bitcoin. And my reply was, you know, don't do it. I mean, you know, don't borrow money to buy Bitcoin. But, you know, he just laughed it off. Hey, I'm just going to borrow this $10 million and buy more Bitcoin. Now, of course, he didn't borrow $10 million. He borrowed $10 million worth of crypto. I mean, $10 million worth of Tether. Now, as of today, the market value of all the Tethers is over $58 billion. Now, the key is when my friend borrowed $10 million of Tether, did Tether actually have an inflow of $10 million new dollars to make a loan? Or did Tether just create these Tethers out of thin air and loan them to my friend, even though they didn't actually have any dollars. Maybe that's the case. So then my friend was able to take 10 
million fake dollars and use them to buy some Bitcoin, helping to support the market. How many other people are out there borrowing fake dollars and going in to buy a Bitcoin and trying to prevent an even bigger price decline? Now, of course, that means the person who sold my friend those $10 million worth of Bitcoin, maybe he didn't get real dollars. He got Tether, but he thinks he has real dollars because he assumes the dollars are sitting in a bank account somewhere. But what if they're not? And what if at some point there's a run on Tether or if people no longer accept Tether, they want actual dollars for their Bitcoin, the price can implode. But the other problem, if a lot of other people are doing what my friend is doing, just borrowing money and buying Bitcoin, yes, this has worked so far to kind of save the market, right? It's the buy the dip, right? Everybody is buying the dip. Well, what if they're just buying the dip with borrowed money, right? It's not new money coming into the space. It's just new leverage. And now the space is getting more and more levered as people are buying Bitcoin with money they don't actually have. Now, what happens if the market dips and then dips again and then dips again? Eventually, not only do people have to stop buying the dip, but now they're forced to repay the money they borrowed to buy the other dips because the collateral is no longer there for the loans. And now the lender is going to force sell the Bitcoin into the market. So now instead of people levering up to buy the dip, you have the dips being sold because the people who already levered up are now getting margin calls they can't meet. And this is going to accelerate the collapse. So there is the potential for a massive fall. And despite that, Nobody seems to be worried from my perspective. In fact, I tweeted out a comment about Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy. Because remember, back in February, Michael Saylor hosted this Bitcoin for CEOs conference. And the purpose of the conference was to convince other CEOs to follow in MicroStrategy's lead and plug their balance sheets into Bitcoin. And the reason that Michael Saylor said that you needed to plug your balance sheet into Bitcoin was because you were losing money on your cash, you were gonna have 2% inflation every year, and that represented a real loss, and that CEOs could not irresponsibly just sit back and allow their shareholders' wealth to be eroded by 2% a year, and so they needed a hedge, and the hedge was Bitcoin. And I was pointing out at the time that if you're worried about 2% inflation, it makes no sense to hedge with Bitcoin because Bitcoin can drop much more than 2%. Now, the reality is inflation is going to be a lot higher than 2%, and people need to hedge it, but they can't hedge it with Bitcoin. And what I pointed out in my tweet was that since it's high from about a month ago, the price of Bitcoin is down by over 34% in a month. Now, if you really were worried about 2% inflation and because you were worried about your cash on your balance sheet losing 2% of its value every year, if you ended up buying Bitcoin as a hedge and now you've lost 34% in one month, that's 17 years of 2% inflation already wiped out in one month by your hedge. And the point of my tweet was, if you plugged your balance sheet into Bitcoin, it's time to pull the plug. If you're worried about inflation, own gold. Or if you're worried about the dollar going down relative to other fiat currencies, then own those fiat currencies. Move your balance sheet out of dollars into other currencies. But the last thing you would want to do is gamble your balance sheet on Bitcoin. And what's just happened proves that. So I really probably pissed off uh, Michael Saylor when I pointed this out. And he made some ridiculous comments again, talking about how much better Bitcoin is done than gold. And of course, they always go back to the beginning. Of course, we just had a huge bubble in Bitcoin. So if you're going to start to measure Bitcoin from its infancy, yes, it outperformed everything. I mean, not just gold, it outperformed every asset in the planet. But over the next 10 years, it's going to underperform every asset on the planet, maybe with the exception of some of these other cryptocurrencies. I mean, there's 10,000 of them now. So I'm sure Bitcoin won't be the worst performer of the bunch, but they're all going to go way down. But he has been ducking invitations. Many, many... Uh, podcasters, YouTube channels, a lot of media outlets have contacted me saying, hey, if I can arrange 
a debate between you and Michael Saylor, will you do it? And I say, sure, happy to debate the guy if he'll agree, but so far he's turned down every invitation. And I pointed this out because he likes to take jabs at me on Twitter, you know, because, hey, that's nice and safe. He's in his home. He's just tweeting out. And of course, he likes to go on podcasts and YouTube channels, even ones that are insignificant in the audience. But as long as he's got a friendly host willing to throw him softballs, he'll spend his entire day pumping Bitcoin. And most of the stuff he's saying is complete nonsense. It's irresponsible and reckless. He is advocating that people go all in on Bitcoin. I've heard him advocate that people borrow money, mortgage their house, buy Bitcoin. I mean, completely irresponsible stuff that if anybody in the securities industry said stuff like this, I mean, they'd be sued, they'd be kicked out of the profession. Uh, But he comes on and he makes all these reckless recommendations and basically says a bunch of sheer BS about Bitcoin, unchallenged, nonstop, right? And so I'm happy to debate him on it. And then he put out a tweet and this was his response again to me, throwing down the gauntlet on debate and accusing him of just being afraid to debate me. And this is how Michael Saylor responded to me. I'm going to read directly from his tweet. There is no point debating a cynic that stands for nothing, believes in nothing, and offers nothing but fear uncertainty, doubt, and vitriol. The world needs strong money. And since by your own admission, you have no faith in gold, equity, bonds, and fiat, Bitcoin wins by default. So let me start by dissecting the lies in the Michael Saylor tweet. First of all, he claims that I stand for nothing. I mean, anybody who listens to my podcast knows that I take stances on almost everything. I mean, I take very unpopular stances. I have never shied away from controversy. I have taken stances that have caused sponsors to pull their ads from my podcast because they disagree with the stance that I've taken. So I take a lot of stance. I'm a very principled person and I publicly stand up for what I believe in. So to say I stand for nothing is obviously either a lie or just Michael Saylor knows nothing about me and is just making stuff up. He also said that I believe in nothing, which again is nonsense. I mean, I believe in a lot of things. I mean, I believe in a lot of things that he claims to believe in, but I don't think he actually does. I mean, I believe in limited government and freedom and the constitution and sound money and all this stuff. Uh, And I talk about it all the time. I think he just plays lip service to some of these concepts. I mean, I think in a way, there's a lot of projection in this tweet because he doesn't stand for anything. He doesn't believe in anything. He is projecting those qualities onto me. And he also says, I have nothing to offer but fear, uncertainty, doubt, and vitriol, which again is projection because he's the one that has nothing to offer but fear. Only it's fear of missing out. It's FOMO, right? He's trying to convince everybody that they're going to be poor if they don't go all in on Bitcoin. He is selling fear. He is selling greed. It's all hype. It's all emotion. What I am doing, when I talk to people, I am using logic. I'm using reason. I'm using facts. I don't hype things up. I don't try to scare people. I just lay out the facts and I present a a, a plan, an investment plan. That is not what Michael Saylor is doing. He is accusing me of everything that he's doing himself. Then he writes, the world needs strong money. I 100% agree. The world needs strong money, but it doesn't need Bitcoin because Bitcoin is not strong money. It's not sound money. It's not hard money. In fact, a lot of people don't understand that the whole concept of being sound money or hard money comes from the fact that a gold coin is solid. It makes a noise, right? If you if you knock it on a table, it makes a sound. If you drop it, it makes a sound. It's hard, unlike paper that doesn't make any noise. I mean, even if you crumple it up and drop it, it's not going to make a noise. You can't drop Bitcoin on anything. Bitcoin isn't hard. It's not sound. It's nothing. But yes, I agree we need strong money. And if he agrees that we need strong money, then we can debate on whether or not Bitcoin qualifies because he thinks it does. And I think it doesn't. I think gold is strong money. And that's what I advocate. Now here, the rest of his tweet. And since by your own admission, you have no faith in gold, equity, bonds, and fiat. Now, when did I ever admit that I have no faith in gold, equities, or bonds? Now I have admitted that I have no faith in fiat. That's true. 
I have no faith in sovereign fiat currencies, and I have no faith in privately created fiat cryptocurrencies either. I'm very consistent in my lack of faith in fiat. But when did I ever say that I don't have any faith in gold? Now, a lot of people have been throwing in my face the fact that on Twitter, people were talking about how I'm losing all this money in gold and I'm missing out on all these equities and stocks. And I pointed out that as a percentage of my portfolio, I have a small allocation to gold. And so, no, I am not missing out on the bull markets and stocks. In fact, I'm making a lot of money in the bull markets. Now, I have missed out on the bull market in the U.S., which I've admitted for years was bigger than the bull markets abroad. But this year, the bull markets abroad are stronger than in the U.S. And in fact, a lot of the stocks that I own have outperformed Bitcoin over the last several years. I have some huge winners in my portfolio. And my point was, no, I'm not just sitting all in gold. Gold is a defensive part of my portfolio. I have always advocated that people have 5 to 10% of their portfolios in gold. And I follow my own advice. I am not overly weighted in gold. Now, I am overly weighted now, and I have been for several years, in gold mining stocks. That is a big part of my portfolio. And it will likely be an even bigger part in the future as gold stocks go higher. But my goal at some point is going to be to take profits in these gold stocks and to park a lot of those profits into physical gold. But right now, I am so bullish on gold that personally, I want to be levered to gold. And I'm doing that through these mining stocks. But to try to say because I've admitted that only a small part of my portfolio is in gold, that I don't have any faith in gold, I have complete and absolute faith in gold. I don't have faith in governments and the fiat money that they create. But also, he says, I have no faith in equities. How could he say that? I constantly advocate that people invest in equities. I mean, most of my portfolio is in equities. How could I have no faith in what I'm investing in myself? I'm advocating on this podcast. People buy stocks. I manage portfolios for people in equities. I have five mutual funds that I own. Four of them are equity funds. One of them is a bond fund. Again, he says, I have no faith in bonds, yet I manage a bond fund. Now, I don't have any U.S. dollar-denominated bonds in that fund because I don't have faith in it, but I do think that people should have some allocation to bonds, albeit a lower allocation, given the fact that rates are still very low and I expect inflation, but I'd like to have some dry powder because maybe I'll have the opportunity to get a better deal on stocks. And so where do I keep my dry powder? I keep my dry powder in physical gold and I keep it in foreign currencies, but I have most of my powder deployed into the markets. I just don't have it in the U.S. market. I have it in foreign markets. I don't have it in hyped up momentum stocks or cryptocurrencies. I have real assets, good value stocks that pay good dividends. And you know what? That's exactly what everybody else is now just starting to buy. And this trend, I believe, is going to go on for the entirety of this decade, if not longer. This is a massive wave, and we are just at the beginning of this. The rotation out of all this hyped up crap into the stuff that I own myself and that I have been advocating that my clients buy for years, the world is now slowly catching up to what I've already known and what I've helped people prepare for. But the fact that Michael Saylor doesn't want to debate me, the real reason that he doesn't want to debate me, the reason that there's no point in debating me is because from his perspective, there is no point. Because all that's going to happen is he's going to lose. I'm going to expose him for the fraud that he is. So rather than risk being exposed by somebody who actually understands the fallacies of his argument and isn't afraid to throw it in his face, what he's going to do is hide and just continue to, you know, to go and take these softballs from these friendly hosts rather than confront somebody who's actually capable of taking him on. And so instead, he's just going to make up lies about me and make up excuses as to why he doesn't want to debate me. But the excuses should be more than enough for the public to see through these excuses. And those excuses in and of themselves expose Saylor to the point where there's no need for me to actually debate him because he's actually won the debate for me by the things that he says to avoid debating me. 
Oh, 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 oh,